Thank you. Thank you. I'm short, so I have to move this down, you know? Um, good morning. It's really good to be here with you this morning. Um, I know that for, for just legitimacy's sake, whenever anyone says that they come and they talk to churches and organizations about something like human sexuality, specifically in the culture that we live in, you should have some idea of why I'm even qualified to do that. So just to let you know, I approach this topic from three different perspectives, and, and one is from a pastoral perspective as an individual who's been in ministry to this particular community for the last 13 years. Uh, I was involved in a ministry called Portland Fellowship uh, as the assistant director there and ministered to men and women that struggle with their sexuality for well over a decade. And it's an incredible ministry, and if you don't know about it, I would encourage you to get to know about Portland Fellowship. Um, the last two years of my life in ministry, I've been traveling the country and speaking to churches and organizations with my own ministry, a Living Letter Ministries, and also um, helping pastor a church down in Southern Oregon. Uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to see the sun a little bit more, so we moved down there. And uh, we enjoy it. It's nice. It's, it, it helps encourage our hearts. <laughs> and my web feet have finally gone away. So um, I appreciate that. And um, that's the perspective number one is pastoral. Number two is I have a loved one that I care very deeply about who's in this particular identity and in this life, and I have to learn how to relate to him in a loving and gracious way and in a truthful way, and that's my own identical twin brother. He's a Multnomah graduate, but he came out of the closet about 12 years ago, and he's now married to a man. And if you can imagine me being in this particular field of ministry and having a twin brother in that life, it gets a little intense sometimes. Holiday dinners are a struggle you know, pass the gravy and repent. You know, it's a little bit hard at, it's not that bad. It is that bad sometimes. Um, but it, it's not just that I address these issues pastorally. I have to practice everything I preach in relationally and with people that I love very dearly. And we do have a good relationship. We have an incredible relationship uh, with him and his partner. And we're glad that we do. Uh, we want to be able to represent Christ in a consistent way to him. And, you know, it's, it's important to do that. So I, I approach that from a relational perspective, too, of someone who practices what he preaches. But the third one that I'm going to share with you today is from a very personal perspective, from my own personal testimony. This year marks 20 years for me of having left a gay relationship. Now, I want you to know, when I was 19 years old, that's when I entered into a gay relationship. But... I need you to know that that wasn't the beginning of my story in my life. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was four years old, and I had a very personal relationship with him. I can remember the day that I accepted Christ. I, it, was, uh, it was a Sunday morning in the nursery of the First Church of God in Yakima, Washington, and that nursery was painted in the Noah's Ark motif like most were back then, and I can still remember being deeply convicted over the fact that I needed a Savior. Now, I don't know why I felt particularly in need of a Savior that morning. Maybe it was because um, I was convicted of the sin of stealing a cookie from a cookie jar. I have a lot of experience with that. Um, maybe it was that I had, you know, fought with my twin brother that morning or something because something about having an identical twin just makes you want to be a sinner. Like, I don't exactly know what it was, but I knew that I had a deep, need to be saved. And I was grateful for a Savior because I knew I needed a Savior. I knew in my heart that I was, I was in sin 
and that I, I wasn't good enough, and I, I was broken, and I wanted to be saved. And that relationship with Jesus was very real to me. It wasn't my parents' faith. It was mine. And I want you to know as well that my conflict, once I entered a gay relationship, my conflict between my faith wasn't based on whether or not I felt like I was going to be rejected by my family. See, I grew up in a family where we were really familiar with gay people. My uncle is a homosexual. In fact, he's one of the oldest living HIV cases in the, in the nation, and he's still alive. I grew up knowing him and knowing his partners when he would bring them into our home, and my parents didn't reject him. My dad did not reject his brother. We showed respect and love to him. And so I never feared that my parents would reject me because of homosexuality. That wasn't a fear of mine. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't reject this in my life because I didn't, you know, I didn't reject this in my life or experience conflict in this because I, you know, didn't feel like I could experience love or affirmation. I knew that our culture was moving that direction. I could sense that. For me, when I began to experience same-sex attraction, it was because it was in conflict with my personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I grew up, and again, you know, we all experience needs in our life to be loved and affirmed and to know that we belong and that we're valuable, correct? We all have these needs. And the Word of God says in Proverbs 27, 7, To him who is well-fed, honey is not desirable. But to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. Now, if I could put that in relatable language, I would say it says bad love is better than no love at all. Now, just so that we know that we're on the same page with that and that we have all experienced this dynamic, I'd like, since I have to be up here talking about my sexual brokenness, you have to participate a little bit in the conversation this morning. And so I'm going to ask you, if you've ever eaten at McDonald's, please raise your hand. Okay, so not everyone surprisingly raised their hand, so I'm going to widen the net a little bit so that we can all participate. If you've ever received a meal through the window of your car, raise your hand. Okay, then you know that bad love is better than no love at all. Because the thing is, is when we're hungry, the healthiness of our choice doesn't matter so much depending on how long we've been hungry. You see, if you've gone like days and days and days without eating, you will make a bad choice to fill the need. Because to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. Now, I'll illustrate this in another way. My wife and I, one, one year, she looked at me and she said, we're going on a cleanse. And I said, I don't want to. And she said, but you're fat. And I said, oh, ouch. And so I decided that I would obey my wife and we would go on this cleanse. And it's like the worst things in the world to hear those words from your wife, we're going on a cleanse. But you just, you have to do it. And so I was on day nine of this cleanse, essentially not eating anything for nine days. And it was really bad timing because my wife said to me, I need you to go to the grocery store because uh, we're out of diapers for our daughter. Church, do you know how many aisles there are in the grocery store before the diapers? Like all of them are before the diapers. And so I walk into this grocery store, and I'll tell you this, on day nine of a fast even a bag of kitty litter looks really appetizing. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh, lavender scented. That sounds good. You know, it's like, I think salt and straw makes a lavender ice cream. You know, it's just, you don't think rationally because your hunger is so intense 
that the only thing going on in your heart and mind is I want to address the hunger. It doesn't matter if, if it's healthy. It doesn't matter if it's right or, or, or any. It doesn't matter. You will eat McDonald's because you're hungry and because it's available and because it's cheap and because it smells and tastes good, just like all sin. But just like all sin, it eventually will make you fat, give you gas, and kill you. <laughs> but yet we do it. Because sometimes when the hunger is so intense, it overrides our ability to make a right choice because we just want to meet the need. Now, you all understand that because you're relating to this conversation, correct? Okay, church. I know it's early, but daylight savings was like a week or two back, so we can get on board, correct? I'm glad I have you on board. So if you can understand that in something as simple as food, isn't it the same for our souls? Isn't it the same relationally and emotionally that when we're starving, if we're starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet? See, I grew up, and even though I had a good relationship with Jesus and I was going to church and, and I was learning about my Savior, that doesn't make us immune from brokenness or temptation, does it? In fact, you only need to be saved for about five minutes before you recognize that the blood of Jesus may wash away our sin and secure us eternally, but it doesn't make us immune to this world or the brokenness that can play out in our lives. And unfortunately, brokenness began playing out in my life, and it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with my parents' marriage. Their marriage fell apart, and not in an easy way, but in a really ugly, broken, spectacular train wreck sort of way. And this was back in the 80s, and I was growing up in a small town, Yakima, Washington, in a very, very conservative, very, very legalistic church. And I'll tell you this right now, people did not get divorced in my church. They had the good sense to leave church first before getting a divorce. And yet my parents went through this divorce in the church, and I can still remember to this day, one of the last things that we ever did in this church was my mom took my brothers and I to a Thanksgiving potluck. And as we walked around this junior high cafeteria trying to find a place to sit, people actually spread out at their tables so that we could not sit with them. And I remember thinking, this is a place where I met Jesus. This is like, Jesus loves me. This is where I, I, I learned this. And for something that isn't even my own fault, I'm being rejected. In moments like that, I feel like the enemy of our soul likes to implant lies in our head that we begin to believe, and we believe them with all of our heart because we've experienced something that confirms them. And what he began to implant in my heart was, don't share brokenness in church because you'll get rejected. Now, I think a lot of us have had that lie implanted in our hearts before, and probably because we've experienced it. But I love that we shared that psalm this morning, that confession is what brings us truly to be able to experience healing. And when we don't confess our sins, when we don't confess our brokenness, that's actually the most vulnerable place we can be. So I grew up and, and my, my parents divorced and my dad left and it was a lot of brokenness there. And I don't want to say any of this to disparage my parents. As an adult and as a parent now, I understand to be a parent is to feel guilt and to screw up all the time. My wife and I pray constantly that we don't mess up our kids, we just make them quirky. So far, so good. Um, but I, I think any parent here recognizes we're, we all are human and we make mistakes, so I don't disparage them at all. I love my parents, and I have a great relationship with them now. But back then, we really were robbed of a lot of things that we needed. 
And one thing that I needed is I needed a relationship with my dad so I could know who I was and I could know how I related to the world around me, and I didn't have that. So I was walking into relationships with my peers very unequipped to relate to them. I had a lot of my strong women in my world. My grandma and my mom were strong women, and I hung out with them, and I learned how to talk from them, and I learned how to like, relate from them, and I learned from my grandma how to cook. But I'll tell you, those skills did not play out well on the playground. Drew, you want to play uh, catch? No, I do not, but creme brulee. You know, it's just not very relatable to my peers. And that didn't cause me to struggle or become gay, but what that did is that separated me from being able to relate, which meant that I began to believe that I was less than, that I was not able or capable or valuable to relate to the world of men. And I'll tell you this, our hunger and our need does not go away. C.S. Lewis said it really well, human hunger will not be denied. It'll be met rightly or it'll be met wrongly, but it won't be denied, which goes right along with Proverbs 27.7, to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. And by the time I hit puberty, my need to connect with other people, my need for love and affirmation, because it had been so cut off and made dangerous at church, and I didn't have a way to relate to my peers, I still had a need for that relational connection. And yet, here comes hormones and and adolescence, and it just really messed me up. And I began experiencing attraction to the same sex. And again, this was terrifying to me, because although homosexuals were not a mystery to me, neither was the church's perspective on homosexuality. See, I grew up in a time and season where I can tell you the truth. I never once heard a redemptive word spoken about someone who was gay in the church. I never heard any hope offered. I never heard any restoration offered. I never heard grace offered. I heard things like AIDS was the judgment of God on the homosexual community. That's what I heard. I heard people quote Leviticus 18, 22 like this, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. They are an abomination. Not it, which is what the word says. The action, not the person. I heard a lot of condemnation, but I never heard hope. And so when I was 14 years old and I was struggling with this and in youth group, and I wanted so much to be able to be known and and relate, that lie, don't share your brokenness in church or they'll reject you, kept playing in my head. And so my relationship with Jesus really began based on this one thing. I am so broken that I need a savior. I never once was able to accept his love. And never once was able to accept that he actually loved me or had grace for me because I could never receive it from anyone else because I was convinced if they knew. I was convinced if they knew what I was dealing with, I would be rejected. Church, how many times have we played that lie out in our head? If they really knew what I was dealing with, I would be rejected. And so my relationship with Jesus became very performance-oriented because he could only love me if I'm somehow doing good enough to make up for how broken and dirty and hopeless I feel on the inside. And I'll tell you the truth, that you cannot live the Christian life that long, that way, before you, get be, you become very disillusioned with God, very angry at him. And at 19 years old, I found myself in that place where I, I had an angry conversation with God. And it's okay to have angry conversations with God, or else the Psalms are in trouble, you know? There's a lot of really profoundly angry conversations with God. But I had a conversation that went like this. Lord, I've tried really hard to be lovable by you. I tried really hard to be acceptable by you, but I'm not because of what I'm dealing with. I've asked you to take this away from me. You haven't. I can only conclude that either you don't care or you're incapable or you don't love me. But I need to feel loved, Lord, and I don't feel loved. 
So if I have the opportunity to feel loved, I'm going to take it because your love doesn't satisfy like you said it would. I made this threat, and I've learned in my life that you do not give Satan that much room to operate in your life because within weeks, I met a guy at church who was struggling just like I was. And we struck up a friendship, and our friendship within three weeks turned into a sexual relationship. And you know what? I don't think it does us any good in church or as pastors or as Christians to not admit the fact that sin satisfies for a season. We know it to be true. You eat McDonald's, you feel good for 10 minutes. And then the McHeadache comes on, or the McStomachache, or the McBloat, or something. And you know, but for that first 10 minutes, you feel satisfied and you feel nourished. But it doesn't nourish you. For me, relationally, I'd been starved for so long for affection and love and affirmation and value. I felt all those things in this relationship. And it was satisfying for a little bit, but only for about three months. And then the Holy Spirit lovingly and graciously began to speak to my heart. You see, I was still going to church. I was still involved in everything at church. I was living a double life like a lot of Christians do. And I was hiding this relationship. And so the Lord just very graciously and gently began saying, Drew, if this relationship is so good and so right for you, then why are you hiding it? Drew, if this relationship is really life-giving, then why do you feel afraid all the time? He began confronting some of the idolatry of the relationship, but in a loving and gracious manner. And quite honestly, every time he did, I would, I would respond basically by saying, Lord, go away. Go away, I don't want to hear it. And it wasn't because I didn't believe what he was convicting me of was true. I knew it was. But the thought of giving up what I had now to go back to feeling empty and alone and isolated was so overwhelming to me that I would rather in that point in my life continue in what I knew was wrong rather than face the emptiness and the loneliness of what I had felt before. In church, I think that a lot of people feel that. We know that what we're doing is wrong. We know that what we're addicted to is wrong. But the idea of leaving it behind and feeling empty and alone is so terrifying that we just hold on to the wrong thing because we don't believe God can meet us with the right thing. And I was there. I was in that place, and I felt trapped. And it was probably three months after that that I showed up at my youth pastor's house just to hang out like I did. I was still involved in everything. And we had hung out after a church service, and, and I was on my way out the door, honestly, to go from there to my boyfriend's house. And the youth pastor's wife stopped me at the door. Her name was Amy. And she said, Drew, I need to say something to you. And her husband, James, said, Amy, be nice. Now, I want to paint you a picture of this couple. James was a six-foot-three Olympic hammer thrower. He's a big man. Amy was five-foot-three and about a buck 20. She was the scarier one in the relationship. And she turned and looked and said, James, I need to say this. And I said, oh, okay, what's going on? And she looked at me and she simply said, Drew, you're in sin and your sin is killing you. Please repent. We love you. Please repent. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, yeah, you do. 
You're not the same guy that we met when we moved here a year ago. Your sin is killing you. Please, please repent. We love you. I don't know what you're talking about. And this went on a couple times. Finally, I said, I, I, honestly, I don't know what you're talking about, but thank you, I gotta go. And I left their house, and I drove probably about a half mile down the road, and I got really angry. Really, really angry. And I had another one of those conversations with the Lord, and I basically said, Lord, how dare you? How dare you ask me to give this up? I begged you for love. I begged you for affirmation. I begged you for healing. You didn't give it. Now that I have something that makes me feel better, you're going to start telling people and confronting me? How dare you do that? And then I got really, really scared because I realized, oh, no, he's telling people. You know, the word does say your sin will find you out, but once it starts to, then you're like, ah, you know, he tells the truth on that. And it's terrifying because I did not want to lose my relationships with people. And I knew that if they found out about this, I mean, it's one thing to struggle with more acceptable sins, but this was homosexuality in rural Washington in the 90s. Like, people were going to get tortures and pitchforks if they really knew. At least that was my perception. And I, I got scared. I'm like, you can't, you, you, you can't tell people. And then I just got very grieved and very sad because I knew that I didn't have a choice in the matter. I knew that I needed to give this relationship up. And I didn't want to. But I drove from there to my boyfriend's house. And I walked in the door of his apartment and I said, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and I've sinned against myself. Please forgive me for that and never speak to me again. And I left his house 20 years and four months ago, and I never again entered into another sexual relationship with a man. That doesn't mean I didn't fall down on the inside all the time. I struggled deeply after that. And I like to tell you that that moment was repentance for me. It wasn't. It was fear. I hid for another two years. Now, if I had felt dirty before and if I had felt like I was unacceptable to God before with just feeling these feelings, now I felt so much worse having done it. And so my mentality in those two years was, if I can just do enough for God, if I can be an even better Christian, then maybe, maybe he will love me. Maybe I'll be okay. Maybe he won't tell people. If I can just be good enough. And so I became committed to, to pouring out every bit of energy I could into being a good Christian. I was on the worship team, I was on the evangelism team, I was on the drama team. I know that's a really big shock. Thank you for laughing at that joke. It's a truth, but it was a really big cliche thing. I was a part-time janitor of the church, and I became the assistant director of youth ministry under this youth pastor and his wife. And for two years, I strove just to be good enough. And after about two years, I was at my breaking point again. But this time, I was at that breaking point of confession because I couldn't do it anymore. And I was back in that youth pastor's house. I was on their couch, and I was in tears trying to get to the place where I could bring myself to say the words of what I had done. And I couldn't do it because I knew I was going to get rejected. You have to understand, church, my family was so broken. My family of origin was so broken. I had no relationship with any of them. My church family was my family. 
And sitting on that couch, I knew that everyone that I valued, I was going to lose. There was going to be no longer any space for me at the table, no longer any room for me because of this sin that I had committed. And not only that, I had lied about it for two years. And as I sat there sobbing, I could not bring myself to say the words. And so mercifully, after about an hour, James opened his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and he said this. He just read it. Or do you not know that the wrongdoer will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the second he said that, I knew that he knew my sin. See, this is one of those passages that the church has long used to condemn people who struggle with or identify as gay. And the second he said those words, I knew that he knew. And he continued, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. And then he stopped. And he just stared at me, and I knew. I knew he knew. And after what seemed like an eternity, he said, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He said, Drew, is your sin in this list? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then Amy. She said, yeah, we already knew. We've known for two years. What? And then she named the person, she named when the relationship started, and she named when it ended. She said, Drew, we've known the whole time. We've known for two years. And I looked at her, and I looked at James and said, no, you, you couldn't have. You could have known that. If you had known that, you would have rejected me. If you had known that, you never would have had me in your home three or four nights a week. You never would have made me the assistant director of youth ministry. You never would have treated me like this. You would have rejected me. You could not have possibly known this. If you did, then why did you never confront me? Why didn't you bring me in front of the church and make me confess my sin? Why didn't you shame me and kick me out? And then James said something that changed my life. He said, Drew, we saw that you'd repented. And we love you. And we wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. Church, I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was four years old. That night on that couch, I met him. Through the demonstrated love and grace of a couple who knew intuitively that I had been so badly hurt and I was so broken that what I needed more than anything was the grace and mercy of God demonstrated to me. And I sat there and I wept as I realized the patience and the mercy and grace of God as demonstrated through James and Amy Payton. And then James said something else. He said, Drew, have you ever heard the rest of the passage? I said, there is no rest to that passage. It ends in condemnation because that's all I ever heard. He said, no, this is how it ends. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. And you were justified. And you were sanctified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He said, Drew, that might be what you were, but it's not what you are now in Jesus. You've been completely forgiven and cleansed 
and God has set you apart for a greater purpose. He said, we don't know how to help you recover from this. We have no idea. But what we do know is the word of God says that's what some of you were 2,000 years ago, and God is in the business of redeeming people. I left that house there that night. I, well, I put it this way. I went to that house there that night ready to die hoping that no one would ever find out my struggle. I left that house that night, and within three days, I shared with 60 people what I was dealing with. And the funny thing is, church, every time that I said to someone, here's my struggle, their response to me was, thank you for sharing that with me. Can I share mine with you? And I thought, well, I didn't ask for that. (laughs) I just wanted to share my junk with you. I didn't want yours. No, thank you. But that's been the consistent response. And then years later, not years later, I don't know, this is years later, months later, God did a very funny thing. He moved me from Yakima, Washington to Portland, Oregon, which is what I, I always say is a very strange place to send someone to recover from homosexuality. <laughs> Seems like Yakima would have been a lot more safe. But he sent me here, and I got connected within a few days to the ministry of Portland Fellowship for the first time in my life, hearing hearing redemption stories. And I will never forget my first night at that ministry in that discipleship program when when the director of the program said, we're not here to turn you straight. We're here to draw you into a deeper relationship with Jesus, and he will tell you who you are. And that's what happened. The Lord began confronting so many things in my life, one of the things being why he never answered the prayer, take this away from me. You see, my homosexual struggle was not the problem, it was a symptom. And the great physician does not just numb our symptoms. He goes after the cause. And God wanted to heal a lot of things in my heart, a lot of brokenness in my heart, first and foremost being my distorted image of who he was. And he began healing me and changing my life. And then I got to this place where I was, I didn't think I was gay anymore. I didn't feel that, but I didn't necessarily feel straight. I was just kind of like floating in the Dead Sea. Like, okay, Lord, bachelor to the rapture. You know, that was kind of like, whatever. But then I met a girl. She was a student at Multnomah. And I always say it's a terrible thing to have to go through puberty twice in one lifetime. But I kind of began to experience that. And I met this girl, and I thought she was beautiful, and, and she was smart, and she was compassionate. And so I got out a piece of paper, and I said, do you like me? Check the box. Do you all remember that? Back in, like, junior high, you passed the note. That's what I felt like. I had always seen beautiful women before. You know, but I'd never had any, like, feelings for them. But here she was. And I share that part because my wife, Suzanne, and I have been married now for 13 and a half years. We have three beautiful daughters, which I always say makes me feel very differently in my struggles with men than they did before. Before it was like an in-the-closet struggle. Now it's a shotgun-in-the-closet sort of struggle. Because daughters will do that to you. Someone once asked me, who's ever going to be good enough to date your daughter? And I said, Jesus. That's the standard. But I share that with you to say that it's not that Christ working in the life of someone who struggles with this needs to end up in marriage and kids, but just simply to say that what I once thought was impossible isn't in Christ. He redeems us, and he has a plan and a purpose for us. And God has been perpetually redeeming and restoring my life. And honestly, I can tell you this right now, something that I used to feel so much shame and condemnation over God in his mercy and grace 
has made a trophy and a display of his splendor, just like Isaiah 61 says he will do. I stand up here before you, church, talking about something that people don't talk about in church. And I don't feel one bit of shame. All I feel is gratitude to the Lord. Because he is capable of doing anything he wants in the life of anyone who will surrender to him and take their delight in him. My story, more than anything else, I think I relate to the prodigal son. See, the prodigal son didn't know how good he had it when he was with his father. And he took it as his, his inheritance and he ran out and he squandered his life in, on, on fast living. And, and, and he came to his senses where he was at the pig's trough, realizing that even the slaves in his father's house were treated better than what this life had promised to give him. And I relate so much with the prodigal when he says, maybe if I go back to my father's house and offer myself as a slave, maybe he'll receive me in. But church, the most beautiful thing about this story to me is that that man walked towards his father's house expecting to be a slave, and all his father ever saw him was was his son. The revelation of God loving me as his son no matter what pig pen I found myself in, is the greatest gift that I think my story has given me and hopefully what I can give back to all of you. It doesn't take that much to relate to people who are in this struggle. All it takes is the realization that sometimes people find themselves feasting on something that does not actually deliver on the promises that it, that it offers to begin with. Because to those who are starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. And that community is starving for love and for grace and for affirmation. I heard it said so many times in my ministry, and it's a shame to say it, but I have to say it. It is easier to find sex in the gay community than it is sometimes a hug in church. We have the love of Jesus to offer. We have the grace and the mercy of God to offer. We all have received it. If we can understand where God has met us as the prodigal, and extend the same love and grace, the same promise of the Father to anyone in this world, then we can relate to a community that, honestly, the church needs to relate to. Because God loves that people. He loves them and wants to redeem them. He wants his kids back home. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with with your people this morning. I thank you for the, the joy it is to take a testimony of life, of my life, of one which the enemy meant to destroy me and to rob me of relationship with you, and yet you have made it a trophy of your grace. I thank you, Lord God, that you are able to do that for me, and so you are able to do it for any of us. Lord, I pray more anything else that we would not be bound by shame by the things that we maybe have struggled with or currently struggled with, but Lord, that we would bring those things to the light of your love and truth and that we would see them transformed by your marvelous grace. Lord, not only let us do that individually, teach us as a church how to foster that in our communities so that we can see more trophies of your grace and your great love. Thank you, Lord God. Bless your people this morning. In Christ's name, amen.